Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Rachel Botsman here with me in London. Uh, welcome to my podcast, Rachel. It's great to be here. Uh, Rachel has worked on every continent except for Antarctica and divides her time between Sydney, where she lives with her husband and two children, and London. Uh, Rachel studies big structural changes happening in the world to try to offer answers on how shifts enabled by innovative technologies will profoundly change our lives. And she's also known for her TED Talks and she's one of the world's top 20 speakers. Uh, her current focus is on the profound trust shift happening from institutions to individuals. She conveys her ideas through writing, talks, and teaching. So Rachel, um, I, I think most people are so busy taking care of, uh, let's call it the survival needs, that they don't have the capacity to think about how to do what really matters. And, um, and that's why I really love people who see the world differently, you know, make connections that are otherwise typically ignored and also have a unique perspective. And I, I, I find you being one of those, let's call it polymaths. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so do you think that the future actually belongs to people uh, that you could call polymaths? I do. I think not all professions and um, not all problems in the world require this type of thinking, but um, to really understand big structural changes, to get sort of a macro view that's of what's going on and to not be responsive to um, current events and affairs, um, you have to look across different disciplines. Um, and I think it's when you get sort of the alchemy of science meets economics meets the arts that really interesting ideas um, emerge and also the expression of those ideas as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think the future belongs to polymaths, um, but polymaths that I kind of describe them as tea people, so they can be really broad and they can put their arms and their curiosity into lots of different worlds, but they go deep on one thing. Um, so there's an application of this breadth of knowledge um, to hopefully something that is quite useful. And um, what would you say is your uh, your passion? You know, deriving from this uh, word "patire," which means that you're you're really so passionate about it that you're even willing to suffer lots of things for it. Suffer, like, yeah. <laughs> um, my my passion is um, it's going to sound quite strange, but my passion is making very complex things simple. Um, I think a lot of academics um, try to make things sound intellectual, um, that you read a lot of books and they're just complicated for the sake of being complicated. And I think it comes from my background is actually in the arts. And one of the things you learn in the arts um, is how to reduce things down to their essence. Mm -hmm. um, you ask, you know, how is this going to make someone feel? Um, so you think a lot about the experience, not just the content. Mm. And so, um, I will work at something until it reaches that point of um, simplicity. And funny enough, I find it quite easy to do in my talks and I find it quite easy to do in my design work. Um, I'm still getting there in my writing to have the confidence to remove things mm -hmm. from the page um, so that they are 
as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Mm. How do you feel when you stand there and speak in front of all these, you know, uh, people that really have lots of power and you, it's a mission of, you know, how can I influence them in the right way, right? Or I don't, it's a very strange you, thing. Um, I've never been coached with my speaking. Um, it's never something I set out to do. Um, I, I still get nervous, but it's not like a jittery type of nervous. It's more like, what can I offer these people? Mm -hmm. Like, um, and then when I'm up there, I feel um, like kind of in a bubble and I can feel this connection with people. And I think it's something mm -hmm. about um, not selling anything, but really caring about my mm -hmm. ideas. and. The thing I always keep in mind is, can I change the way they see something? Um, can I give them a different lens that if they go into their organization and whatever problem that they're having, mm -hmm. or even maybe in their marriage or their personal life, they can apply this in some way. Mm -hmm. And that's the reward for me is when you meet people, even now like five, six years later, and they'll say to me, do you remember the story you told me, da, 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 or do you remember yeah. the graphic that you showed? And mm. whenever I'm feeling nervous because it's a room of really powerful people, I remember I remember the impact that you can have and that it's, it's a privilege to be given that stage, so use it in the right way. Mm. And uh, Who Can You Trust is your second book uh, following your first one called What's Mine Is Yours. Um, I, I can't help thinking about this perfect timing you have <laughs> with this book uh, and it's truly truly needed so when I first mm. heard you talk about the trust shift in Milan in uh, September yes uh, I just thought wow this is just exactly what we we need and um, but what does this trust shift mean really for life work and also how we do business yeah I mean it's it's funny people say you really got the timing right with this book and in, uh -huh. in the idea that trust is shifting from institutions to individuals and I think many of the things I wrote about in the book, particularly in the world of politics and the world of technology, I didn't really want to come true. And they did come true in a very powerful um, way. Um, but one of the main things that I hope readers take away from it and think about with this trust shift is that we can say that we don't trust banks and we don't trust government and we don't trust um, media companies. But when you take those institutions out, the very fabric of society, what are you left with? Mm. Um, you're left with a trust vacuum um, yeah. because you need to trust someone or something. And so one of the fundamental questions of the book is to for people to think about where they're placing their trust um, and how conscious they are of those decisions, whether it be in Alexa, an Amazon product that they're bringing into their home, or into a politician that they're voting for. Mm. Um, so that was my hope when writing the book, is that it would help people take this quite abstract concept of, of trust mm. Mm. and to really help them think, well, why do I trust certain people and, and companies and not trust others? And am I actually thinking about this, like it is society's most powerful asset. Am I really thinking about where I'm giving my trust and to whom? So apart from being a professor, author and speaker, you also do some advisory work for companies, right? Yes, so I work often um, with senior leaders in organizations that really want to understand trust and how it works and how it can benefit their organization. Mm. And now you're getting lots of attention globally, I've seen, and you feature regularly in key media. 
Uh, and um, I read that you recognize as one of the most creative people in business, a young global leader by the World Economic Forum, and you also received the Thinkers 50 Breakthrough Idea Award. So, yes. how, how do you, <laughs> wow, how do you feel about it? And, and also, how do you use this momentum? Um, <laughs> so, the momentum is a different thing. I don't know how, I don't, I, I'm very bad at sort of, um, acknowledging the recognition like I sometimes don't even tell my husband he's like I read about this thing in the paper did you get this award and and but I've, I think as I got older I've, I've realized that mm. I may not need to celebrate it but other people who work with me do um, and mm. that's something I've really thought about because I'm the one on the stage my name's on the front cover but there's a whole team of people that you know, work really hard to make that stuff happen. So mm. Mm. Um, sometimes it's actually about sharing the success, which is really um, quite important. Mm. Um, momentum is absolutely key. I mean, I think ideas live and die by momentum and it's the principles of physics, you know, what has mm. energy um, attracts power, attracts attention. And mm. so um, it's something I'm very conscious of um, and I, I think there's different types of momentum that you need around different types of work. Um, so when you're working on a very long project like a book, um, you need momentum to keep writing. Mm. When the book comes out, you actually need um, sort of a burst of high intensity uh, kind of accelerated momentum. And then after that, what you're actually looking for is sustained momentum of the ideas. So you kind of want the ideas to outgrow the book. Um, and so, mm. I actually, it's funny, um, it's never something that I've been taught, but I think it's actually a really important skill to learn, um, especially when you work for yourself, is how to generate momentum in a way that doesn't feel promotional. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes down to just putting out high quality, thoughtful work in a consistent way versus getting caught in the noise of constantly having to feed content or constantly having to be in social media um, in a funny way I think the momentum comes when you actually you find those pockets of stillness to really think and put something out that's thoughtful that then gains a lot of traction and what is it I don't want to ask what's next in that sense but what is it that you are naturally attracted to and dive deep into what decides that for you? <laughs> um, if I knew that, no, I, I do kind of know it. I think what happens is um, I get these hunches um, mm. and I follow. So with trust, you know, I was studying all everything around the sharing economy because of my first book. And then I was looking at um, things like the great financial crisis. I was looking at um, how people are losing faith in political systems. And it's like the way to think of it, it's kind of like a rope. Um, and it's all these strands of thought and then they come together in a big idea um, and then you kind of litmus test the big idea so the first thing you do is you go well has anyone else written anything on this um, and then if they haven't written anything well is it really a good idea um, will other people be interested in it so you're kind of product testing in a way um, and then it's you know then you just start researching and writing and um, but it has to be something that deeply intrigues you um, and something that you become more curious over time. Um, so I like things that I feel, even though I finished, that I've never finished. Um, 
that you're always learning, um, that they're the topics that really attract me. And what do you think is the future of trust? I mean, is it uh, ethical or is it, what, what can we say? I mean, what, what is the response to the question on your book? Who can you trust? Um, I, so it's interesting. I think um, the big questions coming up, even though the focus a lot, is a lot on the tech companies at the moment and there's a big tech lash going on, I think big future questions are actually ethical. They're not technical questions. And when you look at sort of the thread that ties everything together in terms of questioning our faith in bankers or questioning our faith in Donald Trump or um, questioning our faith in Facebook um, or questioning our faith in a self-driving car, um, the thing that comes up is trying to understand a person's intentions. And I think this is really the future of trust in terms of how do you understand the intentions of a machine It's going to be a huge question because it's hard enough to get it right in human beings. Mm. And then in the age of transparency, um, will companies have to be a lot more honest about mm. their intentions because they can't keep their agendas hidden or they, if they're really not serving the best interests of the customer, mm they will get found out. Um, and, and this is what's going on with Facebook. It's really not about data and mm. privacy. It's the fact that 98% of their revenue is, is advertising. And so how can they best serve the customer's interest when that's mm. the underlying business model? Mm. So I think the future of trust is actually a lot about trying to understand intentions and integrity. Mm. And it's like any, it's like old fashioned business that the real winners will actually be those that show the most integrity and those that really are the most human. Yeah. And with all this online digital, how do you remain human? I mean, for example, I prefer to sit next to you now and talk yeah. instead of having you on the Zoom or on the call. Uh, it's natural. I mean, you want to understand on a deeper level something more than just the words. Um, human beings need it. I yeah. think this is, you know, I am like, Digital technologies are unbelievable in terms of how they create connection and collaboration. But you know, I sitting here with you, I can feel how you respond to mm. answers of my question. I can't feel that through a screen. Mm. And so I think um, you know, automation and efficiency and all these things they have a place. Mm. But companies have kind of got distracted by these words like personalization and customization and well we now know <laughs> like you know three trillion data points on you so we know you as a human being mm. and I had this this morning you know I walked into Vodafone and they have this whole history on me and there's no empathy from the person behind the desk like they just couldn't care any you know like it's like could be anyone <laughs> and they're the businesses of the future is that you walk in and you feel Where, whatever situation you're in, that that human being cares and that they understand you. Mm. Um, and so I feel like for all the talk of people at the center and people-centric design, yeah. um, people have kind of got lost in these really yeah. big systems. Yeah, that's so true. I have many similar experiences. <laughs> <laughs> just like I, I thought maybe I was just, you know, asking for too much or whatever. No, dealing with government services, I always say it's like oh. the place to lose hope, you know, <laughs> like when you're trying to get a rebate on something or just it's, it's a process of attrition. But uh, anyway. <laughs> but uh, I also read in the book that um, you know, about the social credit mm. system in China and it's, it's just 
amazing and it's supposed to be, I guess, 2020, I think yeah, it was, right? Yeah, two years time. So, my, so the question is then, okay, of course, you know, can and will it happen in, in our Western world, right? Yeah, the China chapter, so this idea that um, every citizen will have, they call them a social citizen score, but it's essentially a trust score. Mm. And that this score um, has many different inputs. Um, so it's what, for everything from what you buy online to whether you pay your bills, but also if you jaywalk, mm. your score goes down. Um, and it impacts everything from your ability to get a loan to where your children could go to school, um, whether you can get a job, whether you can go to certain restaurants. And so I remember writing this chapter and and um, it's funny we're in the offices of Penguin because I remember like the editor saying like, this is so dystopian. Like this is like George Orwell flipping yeah. in his grave. <laughs> and have you seen Black Mirror? And I said, of course, I've seen Black Mirror. And he was like, well, that would never happen in the West. And mm. And the chapter really changed at that point because I realized like it's so easy to point our finger at China. And of course, like they live in a culture of surveillance and this is kind of a digitized version of what's been going on in society mm. for a long time. But our apathy in terms of the surveillance governments and companies have on us and our mm. lives mm. and how they're using that to predict our future behaviors, we're not that far off from China. Mm. Mm. Um, like I doubt we'll ever have a score that the government manages, God forbid, but um, you know, our credit histories will mm. evolve into something quite similar. Mm. Have you been to China and talking about trust shifts and, and what is the reaction you have there? Um, so I went to China before the book came out um, and interviewed several people from China. Um, and the interesting thing about they don't see anything wrong with these citizen scores. I mean, this is where you have to really remove your Western lens yeah. Yeah. Um, because they're like, well, you know, first of all, we need this um, for economic stability because you forget this is a country that doesn't have credit scores. And, um, and then they also say, you know, at least we know what our score is, but you're being judged and watched and rated in the West and you have no idea of these things. So I found it really <laughs> kind of ironic that the Chinese were saying like we have a transparent system. Um, mm. I think when the, the article, there was an article that came out of the book that was published and it went really viral and I received some pretty stern letters from China. So mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure I'll go back there for a while, but um, yeah, but the, the there was this definite sense that you, you in the West don't, you point the finger at China without really looking in the mirror and asking yourselves how similar um, your own behaviors are. Well, that's um, mm, uh, interesting to say the least. But uh, at the same time, I mean, it's not like I'm sitting here feeling safe that this will not happen or something similar at least uh, is not already developing for mm. us. But, um, but back to you, I mean, how, do you, how much do you believe in what you would call uh, gut feeling and uh, uh, power of intention that if you want something you somehow attract it over time yeah i mean there's gut feeling which i can come back to in terms of making trust decisions um mm. which is, can be quite dangerous but um in terms of my own gut feeling um you know i think intuition around people is is mm. huge you always should tune into that but um i think of it less as gut feeling in that um i think ahead so i think about things 
not goals, but um, really big things that I would love to make happen. Mm. Um, and then I start to talk about them with people. Um, yeah. So, for example, like I really wanted to teach. And so I started talking about teaching and people said, well, where do you want to teach? And I said, I want to teach at Oxford because I went to university there and I blah, blah, blah. And then it's mm. like a magnet, right? Like that these, because how can people know what's in your head? How can they know yeah. what you want if you don't start to put it out there? So mm. Mm. I think when people say, oh, you're really lucky, um, it's a combination of hard work. Yes, luck and being in the right place in the right time. But it's also mm. knowing what you want and therefore you start to attract the right people and things. Mm. So what now would you like to attract in this next chapter? Um, <laughs> so um, in this next chapter, I feel like there is a lack. I've been thinking really hard about this with the whole Me Too movement and gender and stuff. Um, And I never want to be asked to do something just because I'm a woman and I feel really strongly about that. Mm. Um, but I feel on te in television in particular, um, there's a lack of female expert advisors. So if you watch the news on any given day and you actually track how many voices are men, um, you watch TV programs mm. like serious programming content. Um, and so that for me is something I want to explore is how could I become um, not just doing media commentary, but how could I do something more meaningful mm. um, through a radio or podcast or TV format. Mm. And and also my other frustration is when you see programs on technology, it's often about the mm. gadgets and the stuff. It feels quite masculine. It's about the car or it's mm. about um, mm. artificial intelligence. And I think there's a human voice that's missing really exploring the impact on human values um, mm. and what it's mm. doing to our daily lives. So mm. that's something I'm starting to sniff around. Mm. Interesting. But going back to you, what um, transformational points you could, in your life has influenced you the most so far? What transformational points in my life? Mm. Mm. There's people and there's moments, which mm. I think are slightly different. Like I mm. think certain people come along and you don't maybe not realize at the time, but they're pretty transformational in terms of um, pushing you to another place or getting you to mm. think completely differently or taking you into a totally different network mm. um, or changing the energy around your work. Um, so my professor at Oxford, who the book is actually dedicated to Pamela, um, she was definitely one of those people. Um, and she, uh, teaching, the first time I stood in front of a classroom of 90 MBA students and I had to teach them for three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere to hide. And I remember at the end of the class, she said, you know your content, but you're not comfortable with people being confused because all your training has been to give people the answers mm -hmm. in a very quick way. Mm -hmm. And what you need to learn in a classroom is that there is a right level of discomfort and there's a right level of tension, which is when people learn the most. And you have to learn how to hold your students there in a way that they don't get frustrated and that you pull them through but you don't just give them the answer. Mm -hmm. And that's an example. So it's a transformational person, mm. a transformational moment, because I'm getting to teach in this wonderful university. And then it's a transformational experience in that thinking completely differently around the way I had to deliver my content. 
Um, having children was definitely transformational. <laughs> um, like in, just in the sense of having another human being depend on you um, and how your relationship to time completely changes. Um, the first time I got off the plane and arrived in New York and didn't know anyone um, and was so scared um, and had to find you were there alone. I was there alone and I did it quite intentionally because I'd had this very privileged, safe upbringing. I'd been to Oxford, I'd been to Harvard. And I thought, well, where do you go in the world that could really beat you up and spit you back out? And I ended up in New York and that was pretty transformational. Um, and I think travel can be, you know, some of the places I've been to in the world, like um, where you just, it's not just the culture and the food, it's that you're with people that mm. have a completely different value set to you. Um, and it's how similar but different you are, I always find really transformational. Mm. Um, what are the places that you love to travel to next, if you could make a wish? Oh, where would I love to go next? Um, I feel so lucky. I've been to so many places. Um, I loved, um, I love to go back to Africa. Um, I feel I haven't spent enough time there. And um, when I went to South Africa, um, I went to Joburg, I went on safari, I went to Kenya. Um, it's one of the few places in the world when I left, I cried. Like, I, I don't know why, like it was such a connection to the land and the people. So mm. I'd love to go back there. Um, I'd love to go, um, I love to do, I love the Nordics. I really love the Nordics. So I feel like I've traveled, I spent some time there, but I'd, I love the Nordic people. And I really want to understand how those cultures work. I feel like I spent a lot of time in Asia um, and probably more South America as well so um yeah but africa would definitely be top of my list and uh, going back to businesses and organizations what, what kind of long-term solution or formula for businesses do you really believe in long-term formula i mean long-term i think is 10 years in any yeah. business i don't yeah. think i think yeah. when you see like these 20 30 year plans um, i think Businesses that it's going to sound so incredibly simple, but they understand the role that they play in people's lives, and they understand why that role is indispensable in some shape or form. And mm -hmm. there could be for a functional reason, it could be for an emotional reason. Mm -hmm. And I say this because I meet so many entrepreneurs, and mm -hmm. I love meeting entrepreneurs. Don't get me wrong, but they pitch me their ideas, and I'm like, I get it, but I don't get it because I don't get why people need this um, or mm. why they're going to trust you to deliver this. Mm. Um, and I think this is often what catches businesses off guard is not just when maybe their product or their service becomes irrelevant or their business model becomes irrelevant, but when they lose the source of trust. Mm. So they were known for doing one thing and then they think, well, I'll just launch this other product or service and mm. they don't keep in mind that this is a massive leap for the mm. consumer or for the user. Mm. So the businesses I think that really succeed in the long term are constantly asking themselves the role they play in people's lives and why it's an important role to play. And that could be as simple as toilet paper or it could be highly sophisticated as life insurance. And then the delivery mechanism of what that is can change. That's where the innovation should happen. Mm.
and the social role that companies are playing or should play. That's what I mean. Like mm. it could be mm. an economic role. It could be a so. I mean, ideally, it's all those things. Mm. Um, but I think what happens is. So mm. to give you an example, like insurance companies, right? So insurance companies say, well, they're in the business of insuring risk, mm. but maybe they're not in the business of insuring risk. Maybe they're in the business of reassurance, or maybe they're in the business of permission to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. And once you start to reframe your business like that, the product doesn't have to be a one-year mm. life insurance drudge, you know, payment mm. that mm. you really don't want to pay. It could look like something completely different. Mm. And uh, if we dream a little bit and assume that you have all doors open and all resources available to you, what would you then innovate or change? You know, be it on on a bigger scale or... Oh, or that's so easy for me because I feel education. I feel so passionate about mm-hmm. it. It all starts with education. Um, so many problems in the world would be mm-hmm. changed if you could educate, especially more women in emerging markets, mm-hmm. um, change the way we think about education. So. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than stripping the curiosity out of children and away from children. Um, you know, that's why I say I've got young children, but I know, like my son, he doesn't really want to read, but he loves maths. He wants to learn. That's all he needs to be taught at this age is feed him mm. that passion. And so I would do, if I had all the resources in the world, I'd just reimagine the education system. Mm so far away from this kind of industrialized system we have, right? It's a factory. Mm. I mean, I think so. Far, you could go so far saying it's like prison. Mm. Um, and that many students feel that way, that they mm. come and they walk in, the doors close, they're in these concrete buildings, they eat, they learn at certain times, the bell rings. Um, it's, mm. you know, if you put people in that environment, it's going to produce a certain mm. individual. Mm. And how? How should it be made? Oh, well, <laughs> big well, question. I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's so many, I mean, I think there's reach of education. So there's actually availability of, you know, actually having the opportunity to be educated, which is just the baseline that everyone should have that right. It's a human mm. right. Um, and then I think it starts really young. Um, I think one of the key things you can give children as a gift is help them discover something, not that they're really good at, but mm. that feels uniquely them. Um, like I remember as um, I was like five or six and I was, I was actually, they were talking about putting me in a special needs school. And my dad had this instinct that I was going to be a really good swimmer. And so he started, I started competitive swimming mm-hmm. and I would win. And that feeling of training and diving in the pool and winning started to translate in the classroom. Um, now I was lucky that I had a dad that saw that, um, but every child I think should have the experience of not necessarily winning and being really good at something, but discovering that something that's uniquely theirs, music, art, dance, whatever it is, and mm. it needs to come quite young. Mm. So, so true. And, um, and then if you could give one piece of advice to leaders, however you choose to define those, mm-hmm. <laughs> what would it be? Let's define them first. Who are they? I think when you think of a leader, you often think that they have lots of followers. But some of the most powerful leaders I've met, um, mm. they probably don't think of their role in that way. Um, mm. So it's people that have influence to move other people, mm. um, I see as leaders. Mm. Um My advice to leaders, 
would be to maintain their curiosity. I think, and I see this and I understand it, but when you meet leaders who really are at the top of their game, through the pressures of time and commitments and workload, they find it really hard to just have the space to look outside their world and to be curious and for things not to have an agenda or to not to have an endpoint or they find that they have to justify their time all their time you know their time to someone else or how they're spending their meeting or and so like finding that window to just maintain your curiosity mm. um, you know and some leaders they do that through reading some leaders do that through travel some leaders do that through um, meeting with you know all different parts of their business mm. um, I just think it's it's like one of those things that you can really easily lose um, once you have power and responsibility and time commitments. But do you think that organizations should kind of look different? And, and they're all systems of some yeah. kind, but you know, the classical hierarchical model doesn't feel like it's so valid anymore. Um, what is more valid, do you think? I, I still believe some level of hierarchy is needed. So I'm yet to see a leaderless organization that is mm. highly functional. I think there's mm. a default in human beings to look up and look to someone, um, mm. particularly when there's a big decision with big consequences, financial consequences, human consequences, or when something goes wrong. Mm. So I still think you need quite traditional forms of leadership um, I think the model that is just death is when you go into organizations and you have like a very wide band of juniors, so-called juniors, right? The workhorses. You see this a lot in banking, you see it in oh, consulting, yeah. law firms. Mm. The factory, like really talented people where they're seeing everything fresh and you're mm. just burning them out, right? Like that's <laughs> that's the model and it's kind of survival of the fit fittest. Um, and then you've got a band of senior managers that kind of strut their feathers a bit because they survived and they can now inflict pain on the people who are gonna do three or four years of hard yards because they went through it. Yeah. And they haven't been taught how to lead, they've been taught how to survive. They haven't been taught how to make people thrive, they've been taught how to get through a project or to get through a case. And then sitting atop them are the people who've made it. And, um, you know, and then they out there you've got, it's not just a repository of wisdom. I'm, I'm convinced now that what experience gives you is pattern recognition. Mm. So, you know, I think really strong leaders of businesses, they're paid a lot of money because they've seen this before, right? They can recognize the pattern. Mm. Um, so that model really, I think is, it's just depressing and I say it because I see so many of my friends who followed that trajectory mm. and then they get locked in because they've made that investment right so then exactly. to leave is I can't do that right I paid my dues I've got to reap the benefits and mm. um, I, I I'm very financially driven it's very financially driven and then you know I'm now in my 40s and so you see it with friends where they're burnt out their marriages are suffering um, they don't really see their kids. They've got really big mortgages and it's they're still not content. And mm. so something is missing. Um, 
And align with that, I, you can tell I feel really passionate about that, is, is, is incentives and rewards. And mm. the, the carrot is always the higher salary. Mm. Um, it's Simon Sinek, he has this wonderful line where he's like, no, profit equals freedom. Mm. Like once you've made your money, you should get back your time. I think there's um, so much potential in sort of how you intrinsically motivate people versus you extrinsically motivate them. So even like, you know, um, there's amazing organizations like Warby Parker, I don't know if you've, where it's like, if you're an assistant and you have a boss, it's seen as a, a success story if you go after that boss's job, like that's the end goal, right? That you outgrow that role and you take that boss's job. And I think, you know, more cultures like that where you're not threatened by that progression and you always feel like you're learning and moving forward mm. is more powerful than the paycheck. Mm. And uh, what many people are talking about also is where can I find the meaning through my job? Yeah. So what's the purpose of this company and, and what is it that I am accomplishing together with the company? What is the the dream picture we're working for yeah and so on how much of that do you actually see in reality i think some i think more and more companies are sort of finding their purpose and asking their why um i think the problem is they often do it like at the management level so they'll go through some bread branding exercise and they'll have like a mission and a vision statement and you know and then it doesn't translate into the culture um i think it's you know how do you get the, the man on the security desk that's working from two to six to yeah. care about that company as much as a senior executive. Mm. Um, and if people don't understand the purpose and if they aren't, don't understand the value that they're delivering to people's lives, it's that's directly correlated to, to human motivation. Mm. So how, for example, the example you had there, uh, how could that person feel that he's contributing to a bigger purpose? Um, so it's funny you said because I was, I was in a media company. Where was I? And I went in, and the reason why the security guard came to mind was that it was I was doing a late night interview. I think it was with the BBC, and he was so nice. You know, it was like the middle of the night. He's on the graveyard <laughs> shift, right? He's so nice, and he's like, um, "What are you here for?" Mm. Um, you know, asking me like, um, "How do I find giving interviews when it's really late at night?" Um, who's looking after my kids? Then he, you know, how are you getting home? He he could have just sat there and been like, name, which is what you get, right? But it was like he genuinely cared about the people walking in and out of that building. Um, and I'm talking about him, right? And and so, but I think the reason why you remember those interactions is because they are so rare. Mm. And so there must be a massive void in business that so many interactions just feel transactional. And if you were to give advice to yourself, let's say 10 or 15 years ago, what would that be? <laughs> 10 would be... Um, or whatever is relevant for um, you. I think um, probably to worry less. I think you know, so many of our worries never come to fruition and that you probably spent, I probably spent a lot of time worrying about things that never happened. Um, and I think, 
to sort of know that when you're in one thing, you may not know, it may not make sense in that period of time, but when you look back, it will make sense. So you'll understand like, why did you spend that period of time working with this person or doing this thing? And then all the pieces start to come together, mm. but that takes time. Mm. Kind of trust that yeah. inside. Yeah. Without knowing. Mm. That's I'd true. also say like sleep. I think, you know, when you're in your 20s, you mm. just think that reservoir of energy will last forever. Mm. But, you know, this idea of sleeping well and eating well um, and exercising, I think it pays off in space later on in life as well. Mm. And uh, what do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now? If we think about all companies out there, you know, is there one one thing that <laughs> well, you I'm think? Well, I'm going to say trust, aren't I? Because I'm a bit, <laughs> but I do. I think. I mean, I think you see that mm. um, we're trusting and reputation are intrinsically linked. But um, you can have capital, you can have employees, but if you lose trust and reputation, that's it. Game over. Sure. Um, so what? Like Facebook's um, share price dropped eight eight percent in less than a week and and what's it's a trust issue mm. even Zuckerberg saying that mm. um, so I think it's really important for companies to understand like where their reservoirs of trust are and where it might break down and where it's fragile and how they will respond if things go wrong mm. um, because that's that's the other thing that amazes me is you can trust can break down and you can actually recover from it in a way where people can have higher levels of trust in you before the actual incident, but it's all about the response um, that is absolutely key. Mm. Authentic response and then, right? Authentic and um, empathy and mm. so, um, and accountability. So what you often see is uh, blame, right? Like, so even if they're kind of accepting responsibility, like Equifax and the data breach, mm. they'll blame it on like a patch in the system or they'll blame it on a low-level individual, mm. or they'll blame it on that security guard. And mm. you're like, well, where is the accountability? And then I think the empathy of the human impact mm. of what happened, mm. so that it's not just the financial loss, it's that people lost their homes, that mm. they don't have anywhere to live. Um, so I think sometimes the response is often very mechanical and mm. it's too high level and it sounds like legal speak. and people need to feel like you care and you're going to not make the same mistake again. Mm. And um, in terms of Facebook, I'm, I was just reflecting and thinking about people's response to this. Should we have all been tougher versus you know, Facebook, given what has happened already so far? Or are we just waiting for the next one of, of some kind? or, or uh, Facebook is fascinating because this story is three years old. Mm. So this Cambridge Analytica story broke in 2015. Mm. So you ask yourself, like, what is different now to then? Mm. And I think it's a couple of things. I think people are fed up. Mm. I think they're just fed up of um, companies giving away their data. Um, I think they feel like their vote and democracy is, has been threatened. So they understand the stakes of the game. They understand mm. the cumulative consequence. Mm. Um, and I think people are worried about the concentration of power. Um, and so I think it's really interesting 
like how you can have something that happened a long mm. period of time, well, relative three years ago, and then it breaks, and then suddenly people are in the right place to actually question this thing um, in a really powerful way. What is Facebook in five, ten years? What do you think? I don't think Facebook's going away. Um, mm. I mean, when people say like, I think people will change their, a lot of people change their privacy settings. Um, you know, I think when people say I would delete a Facebook, but did you delete WhatsApp? Did you delete Instagram? Because they own, they <laughs> exactly. own, it's an ecosystem. And, you know, you, I'm sure you've been to Asia. Facebook is the front door. Um, you, you don't borrow money. You don't shop without going through Facebook. So I don't think Facebook's going away. I think um, the general data protection ruling is going to really change things. Mm. Um, I think their scale is going to, I feel like these network monopolies are going to be broken up. That's going to be the next big wave of regulation in the same way we saw telcos and media companies broken up. I think it's going to be a lot harder for them to say they're not a media company, Mm. um, that they're going to have to take a lot more responsibility for the content that's posted on their platform. Mm. Um, So yeah, I don't think Facebook's going away, but I think it's going to go through a big period of transformation. And uh, my final question is, what do you think the world needs most at this time? Tolerance. Mm. I think we've become really intolerant of differences and um, just the tolerance to pay. I mean, tolerance, patience, um, that, you know, people work in different ways. People have different viewpoints. People come from different cultures, they have different religions, but they're still human. Um, and if we were all a bit more tolerant of one another and things that happened, um, I think the world would be not just a more peaceful place, but a more constructive place. Because if you come from a place of tolerance, you're actually in a place where you can listen to difference. Um, so I don't think it's about everyone trying to be more similar. Um, but it's actually taking the time to really understand someone else's point of view um, mm. and, and to tolerate if it's different from yours. Mm. And also, I mean, we need something to unite about, right? Or around something. Yeah. I th- yeah, I think the other thing, I'm a big believer, um, huge believer in community. And I think, Um, again, this comes back to issues of scale that many problems in the world are because people feel, ironically, the connection has left them disconnected. And there's a need for physical community on a much smaller level, Um, local communities, school communities, religious communities, work communities, um, Mm -hmm. that if we could see sort of a reinvention of what community really means in the 21st century, Um, I think people are really hungry for that in their lives. Mm. Be part of tribes and some kind of context. Yeah, yeah. and that mm. your community is not having 500 contacts on LinkedIn. Um, and you know, I really, I'm, I, I hate all the generalizations made of young people, but my worry is there is this void of physical community, of feeling a part of something that's bigger than their mm. physical selves. And so the way they sort of falsely look to that is is likes and dislikes and hearts and followers and friends. And mm. so, yeah. 
That's fi- I find it so refreshing when my son, for example, is finding uh, other people also, I mean, uh, outside of, of Italy and so on, where he really bonds with people who also love cars. Mm. But they meet up physically and work yeah. on their cars. It's like a physical thing they do, which I, I love because it's so little of that. It's so Yeah, and like, so people are using the internet to get off the internet. Um, mm. It's like I have no issue with my son plays chess online, but he has to then go to chess club. Mm. Um, and I think mm. we need to be thinking more about that. Mm. Great, uh, Rachel. Briefly, how was it to be on the podcast? It was lovely. It was a different line of questions, so it was um, um, it was really nice. It was very enjoyable. Thank you. So thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks for sharing. Um, to find out more about Rachel and her work, you can head to rachelbotsman.com and also follow her on Twitter. And definitely, definitely read Rachel's book, Who Can You Trust? Question mark. Question mark. <laughs> True. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Acast. And I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Thanks for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.